You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. Guys, good morning. Uh, So my wife and I experience church very, very differently. I'm the extrovert in the relationship, so what you see up here every single Sunday, me being talkative and expressive about my faith and, and kind of very, you know, into it, that's who I am. My wife, however, is the introvert in the relationship. So for her, faith is something that's very, very deep down. She doesn't often talk about it. It's highly personal and something very close to her chest. Uh, a couple of years ago, we uh, walked out of church in Sydney, and I was very, very enthusiastic about the message that day, and so we are talking about it in the car on the way home. And I couldn't tell you to this day what that message was about. But when I stopped talking, my wife said something which kind of completely rattled me, uh, and her words were just were ringing in my ears. She says... I don't think God cares about normal people, about little people. She said, all the stories that we retell in church over and over again are like King David this and Moses that and Elijah this, blah, blah, blah. She says, it's the powerful, it's the kings, it's the important, the heroes, the influences. She says, God doesn't care about the normal people. <laughs> so we're driving back home and I'm like, oh man, I just... I think she's wrong, you know? Like, and I rally a couple of stories. I'm like, well, I think there's this story about this guy and whatever, and just doesn't manage to appease her one little bit. Uh, two weeks later, I was due to kind of speak in church. I'm like, here's my opportunity. I can actually like, get some rebuttal out and actually talk about this situation. Uh, and I think what kind of really kind of got to me was, all right, I want to find a story in the Bible that is about these normal people, because I didn't think it was my perception of God that he didn't care about normal people. So the funny thing is we've just done that exact same thing and retold so far in this uh, series. We've taken these massive hero stories uh, and we're finding these dark, musty corners that are full of intrigue and hope. And so far we've done Jonah and the whale, which is you know, a big one. We've done David and Goliath and we've done like Samson with his wild hair. So today I'm going to tell you a story which maybe you didn't hear uh, growing up in, in Sunday school. Maybe you didn't hear growing up in church at all. A story about Naaman uh, and the slave girl. So there's this trope, uh, this trope in TV and movies called nominal importance. Let me get nerdy just for a second. It's a device in which people that are relevant to the plot or a side quest will be blessed with names, but everyone else is nameless or we're referred to it with a generic or descriptive title. Uh, you may have heard the term red shirts. Anyone heard that? Yeah. My wife's a massive Star Trek nerd. And so if, if you were an actor back in the early days of Star, Star Trek and you got called up, you'd be probably psyched about the fact you got a chance to be part of this huge TV series until you walked in that morning and the wardrobe you know, that you had to be dressed in was a red shirt, which meant you weren't going to last very long. If you were dressed in a red shirt, that means your character was going to die and that's it. So it was going to be like an early day and you're going to be let off. So this is, is parodied brilliantly in the movie Galaxy Quest. Now right, let's have a look at you're not gonna die on the planet, guy. I'm not. What's my last name? It's, uh, um, uh, I don't know. Nobody knows. Do you know why? Because my character isn't important enough for a last name. Because I'm gonna die five minutes in. Guy, you have a last name. Do I? Do I? Yes. For all you know, I'm just crewman number six. Baby, baby. Are we there yet? <laughs> it's awesome. I don't think this is new to any of us, right? Like, you know, watching a movie and at the end of the movie, the credits roll and the first kind of, you know, couple of characters that are named are the, the stars. They earn the big bucks. They're the ones taking home millions of dollars. And as you get further and further down the list, uh, you get to the unnamed characters and the extras towards the bottom. So 
Let me just blow this right up front and show you uh, the set for this this morning. We have the Aram crew over here, which is the enemies of Israel, once again, back in the same kind of trope that we talk about every single Sunday, where there's oppressors uh, in Israel, and this is Aram. You can see there's only a couple of like, named people really here, Naaman being the top one there. Over in Israel's crew, uh, we have two more names as well, Elisha and Gehazi, but every single body else in this, in this story is unnamed. And so I think what we're going to see this morning as we walk through this this story and this narrative is that often it is these unnamed, these characters of nominal importance that just change the whole narrative and shift it forward. And I think today it's no different. We still live in a world where the named characters, usually the most recognized, the highly paid, the good-looking people, still dominate the landscape, the landscape not just in screen, but in our lives as well. <clears throat> so if you've got your Bible apps, uh, 2 Kings 5, we're going to kind of walk through the story today. Uh, if you want to open that up with me. All right, verse one. No, I don't want to rate the Bible. Thank you. Uh, now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. All right. Tell me some things about Naaman. We're learning the first verse. Don't be shy. What do we learn about Naaman? Commander of the army, yep, what else? A leper, what else? Highly regarded, yep. I think that's the first, first couple. Is there something else in there that's kind of odd? No, maybe we should put the verse back up. What's one of the odd things about this list? The Lord had given victory to him. All right, so if we're in the Hebrew scriptures, which we are, and we're looking at Israel being the hero of the story, Israel being the chosen one, Israel being the people that God loves, why is God giving the victory to Aram? You know, I think this is something we kind of asked in the story of Jonah as well. We kind of look at the city of Nineveh, and, and Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he knows that God is a merciful and loving God who's going to forgive the enemies. Here, God is actually on the side of the enemies. Naaman is the victor. God has given him the victory. And that, I think, already kind of sets it off. So... One more thing that we kind of don't learn uh, in this story that's not kind of on, on the surface straight away is the word Naaman, his name actually means pleasant, beautiful, and agreeable. So Naaman was either good looking, a nice guy, or both. This is the kind of guy I absolutely love to hate, right? He's probably 6'6", six, six, probably when he smiles, the whole room lights up, all of the women swoon. Like, this dude is like the absolute hero, and yet we know every single time in TV and movies a character this successful and this good-looking and this influential walks in the first verse or the first scene of the movie, something's not going to go quite right for him. So, <laughs> leprosy. Uh, now, in Old Testament times, leprosy is, is a huge kind of category in which all skin diseases fall into it. So this could have been simply uh, like a melanoma. It could have been something that was just uh, some sort of tumor or something that was on his skin. Or if it was more serious, your digits would fall off, your fingers would fall off, and it was a life-threatening illness. So it doesn't kind of go into specifics about this. Nevertheless, this is the kind of thing that someone like Naaman, who's highly successful, good-looking, and influential, this is the one thing that's going to trip him up. It's the one thing that his status and his power cannot control. It's the one thing that would have driven him crazy. No amount of wealth and influence can fix this. So let's keep moving forward. Uh, verses 2 and 3. 
Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So here's our first couple of unnamed characters. Surprise, surprise, they're women. If you haven't been around church very long, uh, Jonathan will say this over and over again. This is about 850 BC, and women have no status whatsoever. So our first characters of nominal importance, women unnamed. But there's four things that I think we can kind of like pull out of this verse straight away that I think are really, really amazing and surprising about what this unnamed character, this like servant girl, has actually kind of done. So first thing, the young girl, the young slave girl could have wallowed around in her hurt, her anger, and her prejudice. So for a second, think about like the story that you're wearing right now. This young girl has been a victim of raiding parties have come in from Aram. They've probably burnt her village. They've probably like, killed members of her family, or at the very least dragged them off into slavery where she's separated from them. You know, she has every single reason to hate these people. They're the enemy, they're the absolute, uh, the, the antithesis of everything that she has kind of grown up with. So she, no one could blame her if we kind of thought, hey, you know, Naaman, you're getting everything you deserve for what you did to my family and my, my homeland. I hope you rot with this disease. No one would blame her for thinking these things, right? These are the kind of things we start to think as well when people get the upper hand in our lives. We start to just loop around and hurt. So that's the first thing. She doesn't well own that. Number two, this young girl could have become despondent in her situation. Remember, she's powerless. There's nothing in this, in this narrative in which she can, is going to kind of work her way out of that. This isn't like, like a modern day story where you're gonna start at the bottom and then enter the top. You know, she's just a slave girl with no status absolutely whatsoever. So she could have completely given into despair and hopelessness, and the story would have ended there, but it doesn't. Number three, this young girl could have let her apparent insignificance, her nominal importance, remember she has no name, no status in this, get in the way of playing her part in God's story. Uh, as a slave girl in that, in that time, there's, there's no way you really had a voice. So she took a huge risk in speaking up and actually using her voice to influence her mistress, so it wasn't even name in itself, it was the mistress that she waited on to kind of speak up and use her voice and to say, hey, I think there's something significant in this situation. Uh, she didn't let that get in the way. And the fourth thing she does is the young girl could have let the ugly parts of her life overwhelm the beauty that was all around her. So remember that Naaman simply means pleasant or beautiful, so if you want to take this story just for a second, just as metaphor, what this girl sees is beauty. She doesn't see enemy, she doesn't see ugly, she sees beauty and she sees where that beauty could be healed or could be affirmed uh, and could be strengthened. So, let me ask you this, uh, have a look at this list and go, where in your life where are these things, uh, where are you harboring these things right now? Maybe you're at, at point one and you're in a situation where there's someone who has done some wrong to you and you're still kind of holding on to something that someone's done. I think Jen spoke about this a couple of weeks ago with you know, her message on enemy love, and then Jonathan as well and Jonah said, like, let's write down a name of a person that we need to forgive, and let's bring that to the communion table. So we're a couple of weeks on, let's just examine our hearts. Where's that at? Like, where are you at with that? Is, are you still stuck in that story? Are you still looping on that story? Is that something that you still need to kind of get done today? Is that still something that you need to look at? Or perhaps there's an area in your life where you've grown despondent. You know, perhaps you're not that far from, from what Sarah said to me and you're thinking, God just doesn't care. Like he just doesn't care about normal people. He doesn't care about me. He doesn't care about 
uh, you know, people of low status or insignificance. Like, perhaps that's where you're at, and so you're despondent that God's actually going to show up and do anything. Perhaps it feels like you've been abandoned, uh, and you just don't know where God's at in your life. So, I'm going to keep walking through the story uh, so we don't end up with like a two-dimensional kind of reading of this text because, you know, obviously retold, we need to make sure we're kind of doing a good job of telling these stories. And I also love this story because I feel like there's some hilarious moments where people in power and authority just manage to completely miss the point. Okay, so verse four. I'm actually not going to read this. I'm just going to walk through it. Forgive me if my Aussie accent and my kind of roughness comes out. So Naaman goes to his boss and says, hey boss, I just heard this great piece of news, this little thing that's happening in my life that's not very good, it's going to get fixed if I go to Israel. The boss is like, awesome, let me send a letter. So he sends him off and then Naaman jumps in and you know what he does, he grabs, it says in here in the text, he takes 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels, he takes a buttload of amazing gifts because he thinks that like power and authority can control the situation, he can get what he wants because that's what his life has taught him thus far, you know? I'm successful, I'm you know, influential, that's what I'm gonna do. So he takes massive gifts. When they get to Israel, the king of Israel reads the letter and he's like, what? This dude's trying to trick me, like freaks out, he rips all his clothes, he chucks a massive hissy fit, he thinks that you know, Aram's just trying to kind of like get into his head. So then Elisha hears that the king of Israel has actually lost the plot and he sends this message uh, to the king. Uh, says, you know, keep calm. Because the king's like, I can't heal this guy of his leprosy. Elisha's like, he's all right, just send him to me. So Naaman arrives with his entire entourage. I love this. Like, I love how the Bible puts in these little like, details that I think are adorable. Like, he arrives with all his chariots and his horses. You know? I'm just imagining the prophet in his like, little mud hut over some like, rolling hill in, in Judea and this like, massive entourage just like, bristles up the hill and stops at the front. Knock on the door. Out comes Gehazi. So it's not even the prophet. Like the prophet didn't even get off his couch. You know, he's too busy like watching, you know, something on TV. Probably Desperate Housewives. And he doesn't even get off his couch. But the servant comes out and says to Naaman, "All right, go down and wash in the river." Well, what does Naaman do? Like same thing. Power, authority. He's got all these like huge gifts. He's got all these expectations. He just loses the plot. Like he's like, "What?" It's like where I come from, the rivers are legit. Like this terrible little stream over here, this little pithy thing that's kind of running along here, what's this all about? I'm not going to like wash in that, it's disgusting. The dude couldn't even come out and actually like wave his hands around, do some hocus pocus and be like, you're healed. You know, he just like, he had this expectation that, that he would actually be treated to some sort of royal expectation. You know, I'm kind of like this sometimes when I'm paying $12 for a burger, you know, I, I work hard for my money and I'm just like, you know what, I need to get the service that my money requires. Just like last week, I was at Swan Dive after church and at brunch. And, no, don't worry about it. It's all good. We've, we've all been there. I didn't actually yelp. Anyway, so it's at this point in the story when, once again, a person in power authority like, misses the point that the unnamed, the nominal important characters step up and keep the narrative moving. So remember, once again, these guys, these servants around Naaman, point out to him, and that's gonna take some boldness, because they're just, you know, it's just the help, it's just kind of the servants around him. Say so to him, look, you're having a moment, imagine if Elisha had told you to do some incredibly hard thing, you just would've done it, you know, if Elisha'd be like, go across to Greece and kill seven bears and skin them and bring them back, you know, like that's the kind of thing this guy does, he's the commander of the army, he's like the big dude. But he said, why don't you just keep calm and take a bath? 
And that's what they say to him. So sure enough, uh, Naaman washes seven times. No idea why seven times. Probably some, you know, like spiritually significant number. And glory, glory, hallelujah, he's healed. I love this little detail as well. It says in the text, his skin becomes like that of a young child. So I'm, I'm imagining like, you know, like massive army general, leathery face, you know, he's been out in the sun all his life, you know, like he's hardened, he's got scars, probably, got, you know, like some great battle scar that looks really sexy when he's like kind of roughly shaven, you know. <laughs> and then he's healed, it becomes like a young boy, like, you know, a newborn baby's bum, like, I don't, I'm not sure that's like a huge advantage. Nevertheless, he's pretty pleased. So he goes rushing back to Elisha and he's like, Man, like God of Israel is the one true God. This is awesome. I want to give you gifts. Elisha's like, no thanks. I'm totally fine. But then Naaman asks for one more thing. So I want to read this directly from the text because this is the one thing that I am quite obsessed with in this story. It's the one thing that, honestly, since uh, I looked at this years ago and gave this message, it's the one thing that has haunted me. It's the one thing that I still don't feel like I have a handle on. It's in verse 17. It says, if you will not says Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can handle. Donkeys, that is. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow down there also. When I bow down the temple of Rimmon, I don't know why it says it twice. May the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha says. Really? Like, the enemy commander comes into your, to your uh, country in a vulnerable situation and asks to be healed. He gets radically healed. He converts to your religion and then immediately asks forgiveness for going back and worshipping in the other religion. Like, really? Like, this, this to me, this bothers me on a whole bunch of levels. Um, I have a, a ton of questions about what this actually means. Let me tell you a story first, though. So um, in the church I grew up, baptism was a really big deal. Uh, you, if you want to be baptized, you had to go through a process that sometimes was like six months of preparation. You had to read a book and go over that with some elder in the church. Uh, up until maybe 10 years before I got baptized, you were sometimes, uh, sometimes you had to sit up the front, like today, I'll put a chair up here, I had to answer up to 250 questions that were already like pre kind of written down. At the end of the 250 questions, any one of you guys could actually ask me a question that I would have to answer just off the floor. You know, so it'd be anything from like, what happens at the end of the world? You know, and you'd have to answer that. You know, and thankfully I didn't have to go through this process. But my point is making is this that uh, in, in this church it was a very big deal, something you took a lot of time to kind of go over. And so, my dad was taking this one woman through the baptism course for every single week for a couple of months, and she would come to our place, and Jody was her name. And they got to this one particular point in the book where they were talking about conscientious objection. So if, maybe you've never heard this term before, but uh, in the church I grew up in, it meant you couldn't vote, you couldn't take part in jury service, and you were definitely not supposed to go into the military. So this was a pretty big deal, and you could tell the girl was rattled, and she came back the next week, and, and one of the things that she kind of asked was, can I bring my boyfriend to the sessions? You know, I think he's interested in faith, I've been talking to him about kind of what I've been doing. Uh, can I bring him? My dad's like, sure. Turns out when he comes in, this guy has spent the whole of his life working in the army, working in the military. And so he was interested in faith, and they had been talking week after week as, as Jody was kind of preparing for her baptism. 
So in the eyes of my parents and the eyes of the church I grew up in, what it meant for her boyfriend to convert was to do a 180-degree turnaround and for him to give up the career that he had worked very, very hard in for his whole entire adult life. He had to quit his job, move on, which he actually did. Quit his job, got baptised, they got married, they're living happily ever after. Good story. But for me, when I look at this Old Testament story, I feel like, wow, this is a different, you know, there's something else that's happening here that I don't quite understand. And so I want to back up again, right back to the top of the story and go, what did the slave girl actually say to Naaman? Like, where did this whole transformation story start? And it started with this one thing that the slave girl says, if only my master would go and wash If only my master would go to the prophet and he would be healed. So I think often we wrestle so much with like, what do we actually kind of need to change in somebody else? Like so much when we're thinking about like stories of transformation, we think about physical things or we talk about things that we want people to change in themselves. But the servant never did that to her master. All she said was, I hope that he's healed. I hope the beauty that exists in him is strengthened and is affirmed. So our mission here at Forefront, you guys have heard this over and over again, is lives, neighborhoods, and the city renewed through the power of Jesus. And I think this story today has a really, really powerful uh, lesson for us to learn about uh, renewal. I was listening to this message last week that Lance put me onto, and one of the things uh, this guy said which really struck me was that when Jesus was raised from the grave, he was not given a new body. He wasn't given something like brand spanking new that was all sparkling clean. He wasn't like the story of Naaman. He wasn't like a young child as he came out of the grave. Jesus still had the marks of pain in his body. He still had the marks in his side and in his hands. And obviously it's a big story for Thomas that he needs to touch those things. So when Jesus rose from the grave, he's not brand new, but he is renewed. He is healed. And I think sometimes when it comes down to us, when we're thinking about how transformation happens or how the, minis- the mission of God is accomplished in the world, we think about all these things that need to change in people. Uh, this guy, Miroslav Volf, says uh, this in his book, A Public Faith, How Followers of Christ Should Serve the Common Good. He said, Christian engagement touches all dimensions of a culture and yet doesn't aim to transform any of them totally. Instead, in all of them, it also seeks and finds the good to be preserved and strengthened. I'll be honest, this is something I really struggle with. Uh, I, you know, I think a lot of times when we think about the Christian faith, we think about it being something that completely changes somebody. You know, we think about the huge stories of someone who does something like quit their job and go thing. We think about someone who gets, comes to faith and then becomes a missionary in West Africa and disappears off the planet. But I think in this story, all that's happening is someone who's very faithfully doing her job as a slave, sees beauty, affirms it, and then moves forward into that person's transformation. When Naaman's then converted, he also doesn't seek to do a huge flip around and come on the outside. He just seeks to go back and do his job faithfully and be a person of faith inside the culture. In the same book, <clears throat> Miroslav talks about there's only one question some of us actually have about our job, right? It's, is my work morally permissible? i.e., I work in the Apple store, I just sell product. It's like meaningless, you know, it's vapor. Why do I do this? Why do we participate in a system that, you know, hurts the earth? Why do I participate in a system that hurts other people? Remember, both the servant girl and Naaman were participating in systems that oppress people. 
we only ask this question of like, man, if I could only get out of my Apple job to do something that really matters, if I could you know, get into ministry, or if I could go and work in a non-profit or do something that's like, that seems more holy, then I would be better. And I think we need to ask a better question. Miroslav says this, he says, the other question we need to ask is, is my work morally excellent? And by this I mean, are you just doing a good job? Are you literally standing faith alongside your boss, alongside people uh, who may be different from you, and are you doing a good job in your ministry In your ministry as a Christian? Could people look at you and go, that person is awesome. That person does their job, they turn up on time, they're, they're courteous, they're faithful. They make me a better boss, they make me a better manager. They make this company a better place. Uh, one of the stories Miroslav says is, there's this guy who he met uh, who makes urinals, you know, a holy profession. Uh, something that, you know, it needs to get done, right? Someone needs to make urinals. And yet this guy's one mission was to make a urinal that would save 40,000 gallons of water a year. Simple, right? You think, someone needs to make them, why not make them better? Why not make them something that's renewable? Make something that actually helps the earth. So I think that's my question for you guys this morning. What question are we asking about our work? What questions are we asking about the people around us? Are we affirming beauty in people? Are we being faithful? Uh, in our work. Uh, I want to share this one, one last quote as we kind of close this morning. Uh, it's often attributed to, to Martin Luther, but a lot of people say it actually wasn't. So I think I'm just going to say it's going to be some nominally important person, not Martin Luther. And it's this. The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we are named, that we are loved, that we're people that are just not uh, side characters in your story, but people who are significant because you love us, God. We thank you that you and making us new day by day, renewing us. We thank you that you don't leave us alone, don't leave us in our hurt, in our anger, our disappointment, our despair. We thank you that you don't leave us alone. We thank you that you created beauty and have asked us to participate in it. God, as we work this week, as we walk out of this place, uh, create in us a heart to be more faithful, to be more like you, to see beauty and to help say, that's beautiful, it's good. God, in your name we pray. Amen.